This episode contains content that may be disturbing and even traumatizing to some listeners. Content includes thematic analysis of suicide. Please listen at your discretion. Thank you. to Canes in the Margins, the podcast series dedicated to re-energizing the mental health needs of people with blindness or visual impairment through education, communication, and collaboration. I'm your host, Dr. Clarissa Richardson, Christian mental health practitioner and critical disability scholar. In today's episode, we emphasize the power of curiosity within blindness capability. That is, we are disrupting that circularized narrative of blindness adaptability as following a general pattern of being and functioning. We invite our listeners today to critically approach blindness adaptability holistically whereby the capacity of the person, including their inherent strengths, values, beliefs, and talents are measured within blindness rather than blindness measuring the capacity of the person. We endeavor to fulfill this through a combination of narrative storytelling and organizational analysis within the context of trauma injury and recovery. And we're doing this to inspire a renewed perspective on the conceptualization of mental health in the lives of people with BVI. And so when we consider the general lack of research studying vision loss and diverse categories of employment, and the emphasis on vocational aid for people with BVI reinforced by VR culture and outcomes, the notion of choice and opportunity for people with BVI is an incredibly important factor in the presence or emergence of mental health symptoms or issues. And so my guest today is devoted to his trade and he is committed to driving change in the software development industry. Zach Tidwell is a software developer and Marine Corps veteran specializing in the computer programming paradigm. Zach is self-taught and practices the development and testing of his computer software to emphasize accessibility and other critical user-friendly components. Zach's technology is visually appealing to all audiences because it targets accessibility challenges for people with disabilities, yet it displays and functions like any other program. 
Zach's software engineering has earned accessibility awards and his commitment to improving digital literacy really helps to drive this passion. Most incredible, Zach is totally blind and deaf in one ear. Zach, we are so honored and excited to have this moment to share and hear from you and your story on today's podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk with you for a little bit. The feeling is completely mutual. I've been waiting for this for so long, so I'm so, so excited. Um, so let's test, or excuse me, let's set that stage. Self-employment um, among people with disabilities offers a fair amount of research with many studies indicating data suggesting successful self-employment outcomes. However, there is a dearth of research specific to people with BVI that studies this type of data and relative outcomes. Most recently, research by McDonnell and others in 2022 aimed to enhance knowledge on this limitation by conducting a study that sought to explore the self-employment class of worker, along with other categories of work among people with BVI in more detail, right? So such as individual characteristics and earnings comparisons. And what this uh, study found was that the most common class of worker for people with BVI was private organizations, followed by government and the least common was self-employment. And so when we're comparing people with sites specifically, this study showed a slightly lower percentage of people with BVI working for the government, which is quite interesting considering the amount of governmental legislation supporting vocational security for people with disabilities. But perhaps the most telling finding within this study, people with BVI were significantly more likely to be self-employed than their sighted counterparts. And so that's that what that was with comparing self-employment class solely for the study. And so when we're considering research documenting the systematic patterns of VR services to which service receipt differs based on US states, and this uh, is found in the scholarly section, you can see Thiessen and Herzler, 2016, if you're interested. And the relatively low rates of opportunities for self-employment focused services and training, such as business classes, startup cost assistance, and the proclivity for people with BVI to experience employment-related issues with then successful placement and retention, and this is research by McDonald and others, 2021, and London CMAR, 2019. More research is needed. More research is needed that genuinely seeks to understand the experiences of self-employed people with BVI, their unique challenges, and the narratives that constitute success as self-employed individuals. And I, I believe this insight can aid in the development of better targeted support and programs among this population. So Zach, our listeners are eager to hear more about the work that you do within computer programming, including the design considerations that really strive to create that meaningful experience for your users. So 
Can you share your experience as a software developer, what that work entails within your realm of understanding? I guess, where do you want me to start? <laughs> and <laughs> there's, there's a long timeline there. So if, tell me where you want me to start and I'll run with it. How about we begin, um, I want to save your vision loss narrative and experience for my next point. So how about we begin during perhaps um, your most recent application design and um, what you focus on there? Okay. So like you said, I'm totally blind and to use a computer. I use screen reading software. So everything that my computer can access is reliant on the, the code that developers have put in the background to expose information in whatever application or website I'm using to my screen reading software and it reads it aloud. And so when I'm designing things, the, I do, I'm, I'm very intentional about starting the design process with accessibility in mind, which leaves mm -hmm. the structuring of data and the way that, that you access it throughout your apps, you, you structure it in a way that makes things always readily available for these underlying accessibility systems. So like I use screen reading technology, there's also, uh, you know, people with mobility impairments will use different voice control or voice controlled applications to to navigate through apps and things like that. And so I can also any button that I put on the screen, I can leave intuitive tags so that someone can say the name of a button that's presented instead of, you know, if right. there's a picture on the screen, you can hide that so that someone doesn't try and open a button and it cl tries clicking on a picture that really doesn't actually do anything. And it's all it's really just going through all of your interfaces with a fine tooth comb once they're mm. all finished. And it's, it's an extra couple lines of code for each thing. But again, when you've designed the data structures in the beginning with that in mind, it's, that's all it has to be is adding an extra tag here and there because all that information is always accessible there. Right. Wow. So it's always you, you are operating from that accessibility foundation is what it sounds like that baseline of, is that fair to say? Yeah. And that's because I, so I had never written a line of code before I lost my sight. So as I learned to code, that was always at the forefront of my mind when, when creating new features and things like that. And I think that actually gets at a big root of the lack of accessibility just in general or digital accessibility in the world is it's really more of a design problem than an implementation problem. And mm -hmm. so if you spend a year working on a project and you haven't started from the beginning with the intent of exposing that information, it can make it a nightmare to go back afterwards and try and implement accessibility support because you have to redesign everything right? as opposed to you start from the very beginning with all of that in mind. It just, like I said, you add an extra line of code here and there and it makes everything readily available. Wow. So it sounds like it, I mean, it's tedious. It sounds tedious, uh, you know, just naturally. Right. But you're, what you're saying is it's even more so and much more complicated and to not uh, focus or at least have that foundation of, uh, design considerations for accessibility and and folks who uh, might have other um, uh, visual or mobility needs when it comes to software. 
design. It doesn't have to be though. Again, if you're intentional when designing and fleshing things out, it's not. It's when people take the shortcuts up front that it becomes overly complicated on the back end. And so that's where for some reason there there's this assumption by developers, I think, who, who don't already practice implementing accessibility support in their software that it's really difficult. And that's because when they've tried, it's retroactively applying it. Right. So you have to restructure everything. And that is such a pain because it breaks everything. And then all of your tests from before are invalid and it introduces a whole new layer of problems, but it really, if you're doing it correctly and you invest the time up front to learn the basics of it, then it's, it's pretty smooth and it, it becomes second nature, right? Mm. So it's, it's like anything else It comes with practice and coding in general is constant learning. Um, it's just, I think it's, it's because it's not known about very much by the public that there's not a lot of pressure on developers to learn it and implement it. So they just don't. Right. Right. It's not, yeah. it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not promoted to be a very strong consideration. I mean, it sounds like even in their professionalism, because you mentioned that most developers have this perspective um, that that accessibility realm is kind of second hand, right? Second to the priority. And it, it it's certainly not, um, certainly not. And it's, yeah. bur- go ahead, I'm sorry. It, it's kind of crazy, especially like you mentioned kind of during your synopsis of that, that study, the relative lack of, of people with BVI working in the government. And so that the Americans with Disabilities Act is over 30 years old now. And right. digital accessibility is supposed to be enforced and it's really not. And one of the worst places for it is government systems. So like the VA, the VA's websites and apps are all inaccessible. So our local and state government, like all the the things that I have to do to keep my business in good standing, I have to get someone with working eyeballs to help me because it's, it, it's, I don't know why it's not enforced. Again, I think it's because it's not common knowledge, but you would think at the government level, they would be the first ones kind of leading the way, but it's just not that way. Certainly. Um, I would agree. And I would assume that as well, considering like the study was mentioning, most uh, legislation that is intended to support um, employment for people with BVI, as well as people with disabilities in general. And we aren't seeing uh, people with disabilities employed by the government as as much. And I think that definitely adds credibility to that study because that's an issue. Absolutely. That's really amazing. Um, you know, what you're trying to achieve is is kind of like not just a, a design change, it's also a perspective attitude change, uh, a social change, if you will, if, if that makes sense, to design considerations for people who have um, disabilities. Yeah, and it's especially so with me being completely blind, and I intentionally make my apps also look and function normally like any other app would. So you don't have a visual impairment, you would have no idea that it's an accessible app. It probably looks basic, I would imagine, because a blind guy made it, <laughs> but <laughs> it's still, right. it's totally visual. But even with that, like it's, it, 
that's a lot harder for me to make that work visually than it is mm-hmm. for someone who can see to make it accessible to access technology. And so even for the last couple of days, um, I've obviously I'm still adding content to that first app that came out, but I'm also working on future projects and I've been doing a lot of research into how I might be able to create complex animations with just mathematically and wow. in, in my own programming as far as another thing we're like okay if this blind dude can do this <laughs> right why <I> can't <laughs> yeah right like, come on man put a, a a label on every button in your oh app my goodness. It's so it's I don't know we'll see and I, I think trying to use a combination especially now that I've had some confirmation that what I am doing is resonating with people a little bit and trying to kind of combine it all together to just get it into, into the general zeitgeist. So the people realize what's out there and like how much people with disabilities are being shortchanged in the digital world. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I, I wanted to add something. I, I loved what, when you were speaking about how you actually do have to put in extra work, work and effort to make, your applications and programs visually appealing to sighted folks. Um, And I'm just thinking about the accommodation that I don't believe many people, sighted people specifically understand how much accommodation that that takes because you are in a sense accommodating sighted people. Yeah, it's kind of, it's like the reverse of (laughs) accessibility would be, which you could, I mean, realistically, for, for me to grow my company, I have to do that. You right. know, that's, that's where the larger market is. But there are, there's plenty of tiny companies that exist within that realm of just being blind accessible games. And, you know, will literally have no graphics or very, very basic stuff. And they, they don't grow out, out past that scope. But that's, again, I'm trying to make a point here <laughs> where it, if right. I can do that, it's uh, like, let's get the discussion going. Okay. If, if you're doing that visually, how can I do this? Not, or how can I make my stuff accessible to you? Absolutely. And yeah. it's kind of like that idea of separate, but equal, um, I, you know, getting away from that idea. Uh, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of literature that speaks about when we're, when we're working with or trying to improve those who are most marginalized, let them be people with, um, um, social, other social issues of disability, class, race, uh, there tends to be a separate but equal mentality whereby um, those those lawmakers and those people with power tend to kind of create a space for people in that um, category so that they, they can figure it out, quote unquote, themselves. And it kind of reminded me of what you are speaking about with those probably really well-intended applications that are specifically targeting people with BVI, right? There's no other visually appealing aspects or elements. It's just, and while that is a very a good intended project slash program, I, I agree with you. I think if we're trying to stray away from that separate but equal mentality, we have to understand that we can do this together. And there is, there is necess- not necessarily a need to, you know, detach from, uh, you know, every other sighted person's norm. We can, we can actually develop a deeper understanding by, you know, connecting in this way and, and, and teaching and training and showing that it's something that can be done. And there is no, you know, need to separate based on that, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, and I, I really do think it's just a lack of awareness and knowledge. It's at, at its root. I think exactly. that's what it comes down to. Exactly. Yeah. So can you share a little bit more about how you do this with total blindness? Because I think um, a lot of our listeners are thinking, wow, what Zach is talking about sounds way more complex than anything I would attempt to do. And, you know, this might take a little bit longer. Maybe I asked a question that would take much longer to answer, but perhaps you can just explain uh, somewhat briefly how you are able to do this totally blind. Okay. So like I said, I use screen reading software. So everything that I'm doing on my computer is read aloud and it talks very, very fast. So like you probably wouldn't understand it if you Mm -hmm. heard it, (laughs) but, um, so I, everything, when you're writing code, every a common term, like when programming is, for the apps that you write code in is called, or is an IDE or an integrated development environment. And so whatever, there's all sorts of these different integrated development environments. And as long as those apps are accessible for whatever programming language you're using, then a blind person can write code in there because they can do everything that they need to do to create files and connect files and things like that, because at its core code is all text. And so that actually lends itself really well to being okay. accessible. So it's when, when people are writing code, at least today, like obviously at, at its base level, everything gets compiled from human readable code all the way down into binary, which is ones and zeros. And that's what runs on your phone. But the programming languages all they, Yes, there's a lot of weird syntax rules and stuff like that, but it is human readable. It's not all numbers. There's actual text. And so my screen reader is just able to read all of that. And when something isn't right, I can go through character by character, which I, I don't use a mouse. It's all keyboard commands. So it's anywhere from two keys at a time all the way up to like four or five. So you end up doing like gymnastics with your hands to make it happen. <laughs> but um, that's that's why this works. And it's, that's another thing I'm trying to kind of increase discussion about is this is actually a great area for blind people to get into, not only because it is all text-based. So if these apps that are made by these big companies, like the integrated development environments, there's a big one made by Microsoft and a big one made by Apple. While those are accessible, that's a great place for blind people to get into and also a great place for them to really leverage their disability as a strength and become exactly. a subject matter expert on digital accessibility and implementing it at whatever company they get into. And this is an already pretty largely unemployed population. Right. And this is a, I mean, software developers, if you don't do what I did and start your own company, <laughs> make good money. Um, so it's, it's really, it's, it's a great place for, for, people of this community to to have an impact and also kind of break another norm of being in poverty because you're disabled it right. doesn't have to be that way that's beautiful um yeah. thank you for debunking that myth because i think a lot of our listeners are, are a little unfamiliar with uh, screen reader technology and i'm gonna uh, add and agree with you it is quite fast uh, i i do listen to my mother's screen reader technology jaws it's all over the house and it's quite fast However, it's your what you're pointing out is very important because we do have there is an advantage to learning how to code 
learning and, and perhaps even entering this industry, uh, computer software, software development, computer science, because coding gives you the advantage where you don't necessarily have to uh, start by learning new technology. You get to use your screen reader technology to help guide that work. Um, and that's wonderful. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it is like anything else with a computer when you're blind, like it, it, it's extra hassle trying to track down things that are accessible and you're still going to run into barriers that are created by other developers not supporting accessibility. But if you're <laughs> stubborn enough, you can, you can do it. There's other blind programmers out there for sure. It's just, yes. again, not very talked about. It's wonderful. Zach, um, we talked about how these coding has its strengths for people with BVI um, and those with visual impairments specifically. In your experience as a coder and software developer, what can you say, if anything, was a particular uh, difficulty that might be related to your blindness, if at all? If not, I think our listeners would love to hear that. Like, did you notice any challenges due to your visual impairment? entering this industry or did you find it quite, like you said, easy to, to use? And no, it, it's been a pretty rough, <laughs> getting, getting to this point was rough. Now I've kind of got my, my systems figured out and, and workarounds for inaccessible areas, but it's been, it, it's kind of surprising even, you know, so I currently, since it's just me and my company and to, make things as accessible as possible, which is the whole reason that like my apps have started getting recognition is because I develop specifically for each platform that, that things are on. And so right now my apps are only on, on the Apple app store. And even though Apple created the, the integrated development environment that I write all my code in, that's not completely accessible. Neither is there online software for developers to manage my business and get my apps on the app store. Neither is there documentation for the programming language. I mean, there's I a lot of stuff like that, that is, again, where it's like, you've got this giant company and they're very towards like the general public. They, they present themselves as being very accessibility focused, but it's on the developer side of things. A lot of those barriers still exist. Right. Not sure why. I, I don't, uh, yeah, I, I don't yeah, know. No, it is interesting. The biggest barrier. Yeah. No, it is interesting. So. Thank you for sharing uh, what your experience there. And I agree because what you're meant, you know, you're pointing out it's, you know, design, not implementation design, not necessarily attitude sometimes. Cause Apple, I think I would agree with you is pretty open to being diverse in their programs and all that, but you know, you're still noticing these issues. And, and so I think that's important to point out as well. Well, it's, it's impossible to get in touch with anyone with who actually one knows what you're talking about when you're like, Hey, here's a, this is an issue. I'm a blind developer. Like I can't get around this around X thing. It's so compartmentalized that, that you can't get in touch with anyone. And the one time that I actually have was through the blinded veterans association. And then once wow. I brought the problems to the, it was, it was all like middleman. I had to pass the information through the blinded veterans association and they pass it on to their contact at Apple, but they're like, yeah, just reach out to us via the official channels. And so then I tried again and never heard anything back. And really? Wow. 
so it's, I mean, this has been, I've been coding for over two years now and these issues have been present that entire time. And I've been trying to reach out to Apple or other people who have platforms associated with Apple technologies that are like well-known in the industry. And it's, it's, that's strange to me. I just, I, again, I don't understand why it is that way, but that's, those have been like the big barriers. I would agree. It's very strange. Um, and it's also insightful um, to the work that you're doing, how, how important it is to have that awareness, that social awareness and to get people with BVI and people with other disabilities um, more open to learning these types of skills in this trade. So Zach, I wanted to ask about Xanagrams because I think it is pretty incredible of an application. So can you share with our listeners a little bit about what that uh, application purpose is and uh, a little bit of background into how you came about developing that? Yeah. So Xanagrams came out in July of last year. So July of 2023. And then it actually just won two game of the year awards from like major accessibility focused platforms just because of its level of accessibility so that's been pretty cool and some confirmation wonderful at least on that side of things i'm doing things right and now that's i'm trying to help increase discussions like now that i i have that behind me but xanagrams like we talked about earlier is completely visual for those of you who can see and it's a word puzzle game so If you don't know what anagrams are, traditionally you get some sort of context clue as to what a one-word answer might be, like the the hair equivalent for a bird, and the answer would be feather. With xanagrams, every puzzle that you open has six clues for anagrams in them, and at the end of each clue, it tells you how many letters apply to the answer for that clue. And then in the bottom portion of the screen, all six of those answers have been separated into groups of two or three letters and then all mixed in together as buttons. And so you can tap buttons to add them to your current spelling and the game automatically detects when you've solved one of those answers. And then those buttons that you use to solve that answer become permanently disabled. So you can use the process of elimination to work through these puzzles. And I've written over, I think I'm getting close to 1200 anagrams that I've written for the game so far, but- wow. There are some, about half of what's available are themed ones, which, so every, then every anagram in the puzzle pack, so there's 60 anagrams in every puzzle pack, every one will be, you know, related to a certain theme, like outer space or ancient history or hobbies, and then the unthemed ones have zero context to them, so they're very hard, (laughs) because you, I mean, the answers could be anything and they're much not anything. associated with each other <laughs> yeah but that's the the general gist of it and it's it's competitive it, it <laughs> scores you you can share your scores with friends and i'm actually in the process of implementing leaderboards and stuff like that right oh, now so that, no <laughs> yeah Compe- yeah. competition is gonna get even more spicy i love it that's yeah that's cool that's yeah. really neat and i'm assuming zach uh xanagrams is stands like is you know was influenced by your first name, Zach, or? Yeah, so I had a more original name set aside for it the whole time I was making it. And then I went to register it on the app store and that name and just about every other name I could think of was taken. So (laughs) (laughs) we went back to the Oh, ain't that the truth? That's how it happens. Oh, goodness. Uh, Yeah. 
That's funny. Okay. Well, Xanagram sounds like a wonderful game, and I, I would encourage my listeners to download it, uh, read about it, go on Apple uh, uh, applications. I think it is that what it's called, Apple applications? The App or? Store. The App Store. And I'm an Android user, so but <laughs> um, the App Store and then take a look at some of Zach's um, applications and think and download Xanagrams. So I want to talk more about your story now, Zach. The work that you're doing today is incredible. This is particularly true when we're considering your vision. You have no light perception whatsoever. You have no visual function. And as you were speaking about your trade and the complexities of computer coding and testing, it does seem even that much more uncommon for you to be interested in this type of work, albeit your obvious mastery of it today. So apart from your vision and the technical work that you do, Zach, there is much that people do not know about you. And much of the work that you do now emphasizes an incredible amount of skill and talent However, I believe the narrative that you hold will really aid listeners in understanding where much of your fortitude arrives from. So I would love it if you would share with our listeners your vision loss experience and how that experience helped shape your career choice. So I'm totally blind and deaf in one ear, like you said, the clinical diagnosis for that is three quarters of the way to Helen Keller. And <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's where oh, goodness. I'm at now. I've got some other stuff going that's on. So funny. So I don't think I've ever heard that before. So I wasn't prepared. So <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Uh, yeah. So that's, uh, it is January of 2024 right now. And I lost my sight to a suicide attempt on March 31st of 2019 it was about nine months after I got out of the Marines and a bad combination of head injuries personal circumstances and eventual alcohol abuse kind of came together and I just got me to the point where I didn't want to be here anymore Uh, I was working and going to school full-time to become a nurse but I was just I'm struggling and So I shot myself in the head on March 31st of 2019, and that's what started this whole journey. I I don't know how long after I shot myself that I came back to in the hospital, because somehow I was awake all the way into the hospital, Um, but they had to put me out because I was combative. And so at some point, they they brought me off life support because they had innovated me. And I was totally blind and so out of it from the head injury and all of the the medications I was on that I didn't realize I was blind for some time. But once we found out that, or once I found out or realized that I wasn't seeing what I thought I was seeing in front of me, because I was imagining these very vivid things and I could have a conversation like I am with you right now, but I couldn't see you. I would see stuff in like these wild settings from my imagination, but it just, I was not making the connection, but that began the long path of starting to, to learn how to do everything again. So learning how to feed myself and brush my teeth and walk around. And eventually I got back into college 
in January of 2020 and was going for clinical psychology and then eventually moved back out on my own that same year and was doing the school thing. And I came to the point in 2021 where I was in a clinical or a statistics for clinical research class that was completely inaccessible and to the point where the school had assigned someone to be my eyes for the class. So for homework, we would hop on Zoom. She would read the information to me. I would do the calculations on my talking calculator, give her the answers, and she would put them in. Same thing for tests. It From the very beginning, at least since I learned how to use a screen reader and stuff like that, which was five or six months after I shot myself, the digital accessibility barriers have been a huge hot button for me. And it's because I've worked so hard to be independent again that when it's something like that that I can't do anything about because it's totally out of my hands, that's very frustrating for me. And so... I was in that class for a couple of weeks and I, I'd already mentally been struggling, but uh, we got to the first exam, took the exam. And then that night I had ordered some alcohol. I was like, all right, I'm going to blow off some steam. And I hadn't drank in a, in a while. So I still hadn't realized that I had a problem with alcohol at that point. You know, I hadn't been drinking for a while. So I am like, okay, I'm not an alcoholic. I'll just, I'm good. And basically that, got me back to a really dark place very fast with the accessibility issues and then adding alcohol to it. And I ended up self-admitting to the VA because I thought I was going to hurt myself again. I was there for about 24 hours. And when I came home, you know, I like, I, I had my own house at this point, but my parents picked me up and then took me back to my house and they were like, dude, like what's like, what are you going to do? Or like, what like why are you doing this kind of thing and so I ended up starting to research why some things were accessible and others weren't with my screen reading software and found out that it came down to the code running in the background and I dropped out of college and started teaching myself how to code so I could make accessible software and I taught myself completely by reading articles online (laughs) so again finding accessible articles and even that was a a thing so the VA only taught me how to use a screen reader on a Windows computer which is called JAWS right I tried I invested like nine months into learning a programming language that everything was supposed to be accessible for and on on a windows computer because that was the only screen reader i knew how to use and then it turned out when i it came time that i finally had something i was ready to test their developer tools weren't accessible and so i couldn't get it onto my devices to test it and so i kind of went back to square one and started doing research into how i could make apps specifically for apple devices since i knew voiceover on a phone but using it on a computer and for those of you who don't know, VoiceOver is Apple's screen reading software. It's automatically on all their devices, but using it on an iPhone and using it on a computer are two totally different things. Mm-hmm. Like I said earlier, I have to use the keyboard for everything on a Mac. And it 
the keyboard commands for voiceover versus JAWS are completely different. The entire systems are different. And so I actually ended up using JAWS to read about how to use voiceover to teach myself how to use voiceover on a Mac and then taught wow. myself how to code on the Mac. So again, wow. that was like almost a two year process from the time that I started teaching myself how to code in October of 2021 until Xanagrams came out last July. And now I have my own, I formed my own company. Like I said, I just won two of those small awards and have started to get a little bit of recognition outside of the accessibility space, a tiny bit, but it's something. And here we are now. It's been a long, <laughs> long haul to get to this point, but that's what led me here. Wow. Zach, that's an amazingly powerful story. And I know I appreciate you sharing this. And I know that we we were going pretty quick as to some of the the challenges that led to the suicide attempt to which you lost your vision. And I want to just add that, you know, it sounds like among all of those things, you were still trying to become more independent, as independent as possible as you were before. And it was during this moment where you noticed that, you know, you were going to have to be struggling with this screamer technology, as well as just the lack of digital accessibility. And that was something that kind of changed the course of how you saw your future. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and that, you know, that all started in college where legally they have to make your classes accessible. And so right. that their IDA. solution was to give somebody with eyeballs, like assign me someone with eyeballs. And you don't get that in a workplace. And I knew that was going to be a thing that I would deal with for the rest of my life. And I wanted to be part of the solution. So I became that and am now working to become more of that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Working to become more of that and change those, those problems. Um, you know, when most people hear of an individual experiencing trauma, such as that within your story, it often stirs some confusion within such as, you know, how can someone go through something so traumatic and find purpose, strength and hope on the other side? Um, and moreover, when we consider blindness as one of many consequences of your story, like one of many, not the only, there's many, I, Zach, the confusion I, I think can be even more prominent for most people because the idea of blindness is that it is permanent, right? There's a permanency there. Um, however, when we think about the permanency of any situation, it really comes down to mindset, right? I mean, um, I'm going to share Carol Dweck's 2006 mindset theory. And this theory postulates that, and this is a quote, the view you adopt for yourself profoundly affects the way you lead your life. It can determine whether you become the person you want to be and whether you accomplish the things you value. And that's the end of that quote. So it's like that fixed mindset is one that has intelligence that's static. You know, these individuals might avoid challenges. They might give up easily. They might see effort as fruitless or worse. They might ignore useful negative feedback. They might feel threatened by the success of others. Whereas a growth mindset, you know, this is one that has intelligence that can be developed. These individuals embrace challenges. They 
persist in the face of setbacks and they see effort as a path to mastery. They're learning from criticism, right? They're finding lessons and inspiration in the success of others. And these are individuals who ultimately are emotionally mature. They are, or they are developing emotional maturity. They can transition from that fixed mindset to a growth mindset. And so, I mean, I don't believe Dweck's 2006 mindset theory differs based on the lack of vision or sight, right? I think it can certainly make it more difficult to shift from a growth mindset due to some of the social and physical aggravators that people with BVI experience. Um, but it's still something that's true to, I think, human nature. Can you maybe share how you navigated these aggravators during your recovery and career? So maybe the, those earliest moments? Yes, yeah, so it, it has not been smooth. Uh, like, obviously, I, I said that I committed myself to the VA back in 2021. But even before that, especially when I, I bought my first house at the end of 2020, and that was right at the beginning of COVID. Everything was shut down, and I really struggled then mentally. I, like I, it got. Well, I was talking to my my psychologist every day because, and I told her I was like, I am suicidal. I'm talking to you because, like, you know, I've I've had the same psychologist since I was transferred to the VA once I was stable, and you know, I told her I was like, look, like I don't want to be. Obviously, I'm dealing with it differently now than I did before. I'm talking about it, and I wasn't when I shot myself but that i've i've had those those very deep lows again i've just i've talked talked through them and it, it's been an uncomfortable process over the past almost five years of, of going to therapy but it has gotten easier and it's and i used to not even be open about it and i wouldn't talk to anyone about it and i would get mm -hmm. sweaty when i did talk about it or things with my ex-wife um so that's I, I know I didn't mention this before, but I was married and on my second deployment, I found out that my wife was cheating on me from the wife of the man who she was cheating on me with. And so that was kind of the first thing wow. that I'd started struggling with. And then motorcycle accident after I got back with the head injury and on top of other just, you know, kind of repetitive exposures that I'd had while I was in the infantry and then the alcohol not long after that but it's been you know and I, I've struggled with alcohol since I'm sober now congratulations that was, uh, <laughs> that was uh, you know I had every self-pitying reason to to be drinking and, and so I would I think coming out of the Marine Corps I didn't have very great coping skills because especially in an infantry unit like that I mean you it's shut up and you're going to drink like, or you're all just going to get hammered. So I've had to develop those and a lot of it, it's been consistent work through therapy. And also just, you know, I, before I could even cook for myself again, I was up in the mountains trying to snowboard mm -hmm. with some other blind vets. And awesome. that I guess was the first thing for me that gave me a sense of like, okay, like this isn't over. You know, when initially when when everything was so new, we I thought I was going to live with my parents for the rest of my life or that I'd be in a nursing home. And that was kind of the first thing where I'm like, OK, like I can do this. And <laughs> it's funny. I know I told you when we had talked before, you know, like our, our pre 
right. interview discussion. <laughs> I know where you're going with this. I know. No, you are. Please just do what All you right. do. Yeah. So, this... The uh, after I, I was still out of it in the hospital, but you know, I for some reason had remembered that in the Marine Corps chow halls, the salt and pepper shakers said something to the effect of like made proudly by the blind and visually impaired. And I was talking to my parents one day while I was still in the hospital and trying to figure out, you know, like, and just talking about the future. And I was like, I'm not fucking making salt and pepper shakers. And they're like, dude, what? I'm like, <laughs> what are you talking about? And I was like, I'm not fucking making salt and pepper shakers. And well, we talked about that all. And early on, I didn't know if that would be the case, but that getting out and getting back to a sense of normalcy, trying to snowboard, even though it wasn't successful, was a big step for me. And also I met some other blind vets who kind of, you know, we talked about the hard stuff while I was up there and got me to that mindset of like, okay, I'm going to be intentionally open about this. Mm -hmm. And that facilitated a lot of growth. It just, you know, I, I don't sweat anymore talking about it and I'll actually I mean other people don't usually find it funny but I'll make jokes when I'm telling the story you know I think a lot of other people don't really know if they're allowed to laugh or not (laughs) because it's morbid but yeah um, I mean that's just your humor I think (laughs) yeah just having a a sense of humor about it has, has been helpful even from the beginning but honestly just making myself talk about it and then getting back into things I'm I'm still very active and I think regardless of disability that that plays a huge role in mental health i've always oh. been very active but and that's kind of like a cornerstone for every day for me at some point like i am going to do something that's hard and that sucks and mm-hmm. that makes other hard things not feel so hard <laughs> so right. i think all all those things together i have kind of it, it's been a learning process but have guided me along this path Yes, certainly. Thank you. And as you were speaking about the pens, uh, or sorry, the uh, salt and pepper shakers, um, I'm laughing because, uh, but also just like add a, a layer of seriousness on it. I I think it, it's important to also consider that this was your social perception of blindness. I mean, this, in a way that that reaction, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but that reaction sounds like it was, there was a perception of what you believed was going to be your future based on the concept of blindness and blind people and what blind people do and what blind blind people can do and can't do. Yeah. I, I, I had never met a blind person in my life. And uh, when I was in college, right after I got out of the Marines, there was a woman at my school that I would see walking around, but she had a cane, but she was definitely low vision because she was just weaving in and around people. So even that I, and I never talked to her, but yeah, I just, I had no idea. I, I had no idea, especially with the access technology stuff. I mean, without screen reading software and things like that, as in a world or in the world that we live in today with everything being more and more digital, like you'd be kind of left tongue out to dry on, on that aspect of things. That's a good way and to I say think, it. Yeah, and I think a lot of people still fall into that. You know, there are can't remember the name of these organizations there are organizations that and unfortunately some of them kind of have bad reputations because of maybe taking advantage of the disabled people that they employ a little bit go ahead and say it if you want to say it you can say it 
<laughs> no, I can't. I literally I can't remember the name of. There's one in particular that I just can't re remember the name of, but they were probably the ones making the salt and pepper shakers. <laughs> but um, oh goodness, you know. yeah. But you know, if you especially people like if if you're not blind and then you have a kid who ends up being blind and you don't know what else to do, like that might be the first thing that you find. And I think you know, had the VA not told me when I when I first got transferred to the VA after I was stable and out of the ICU like th they had a blind rehab professional come in and she had a master's degree in blind rehab and started talking to me and asking what I used to do and telling me that you know I'd be able to go snowboard and get a job and that I they could set me like but I had an iPhone already. They just turned on the screen reader that was in there, which was yeah. hilarious because at the private hospital that I was at, they didn't know anything about that. And so I would sit in my room and I also had a Swiffer mop handle with a tennis ball on the end of it for my cane. They didn't know how to teach me how to use it. Mm. So they just kind of had me like drag it along walls and stuff like that. But, you know, had had I not gotten transferred to the VA, who knows how long it would have been before I found out that any of that stuff was around. And it could have been a very, very different outcome. Absolutely. Which and is this is scary. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a good lead way into my next, my next point um, is the difference that the, your experience with VA rehab, because it was certainly different than, um, you know, state federal uh, VR. But before I, get into that, Zach, I wanted to add, just so our listeners are aware, um, you had also a lot of facial reconstructive surgery, correct? And so yeah. that, can you share a little bit about what, what that experience was like? Yeah. So I shot myself between the eyes. That is where you were trained to shoot people in the head because you're, yeah, they call it your T-box. The idea is that, you know, if you hit in that little area, like at the bridge of someone's nose and kind of between their eyebrows that you'll hit their, the part of their brain that regulates all the autonomous or autonomic functioning, like your breathing and your heart and all that stuff. And so that's why I shot myself and somehow none of the bullet entered my brain, but it did absolutely annihilate my sinuses, the bridge of my nose and like that lower part of my forehead, right at like the top of my bridge of my nose and my entire right orbital area. So all that bone was gone and they kept the bullet hole open for like two months while I was in the hospital. I was in the hospital for 51 days and I had my facial reconstruction surgery a week before I got out of the hospital. So before that, they kept it open and were packing it with gauze twice a day. Wow. But yeah, it was pretty gnarly. But Yeah, it sounds pretty I, gnarly. It's a good word for it. Yeah. So um, the bullet slash bone that kind of shot out of my face um my right uh my right optic nerve got completely severed and then my left one actually just died from the swelling inside of my head oh i see it was just constriction of blood flow but and that's actually why i'm deaf in my right ear some of the bullet fragments they rode around the inside of my skull some of them settled in my inner ear on that right side and then one piece actually settled and nicked my right carotid artery so like i was on blood thinner and they thought i was gonna have to have a stint for a little bit um all of it was really touch and go early on but with a face reconstruction surgery they did a ct scan of the left
left side of my skull that was still intact for like the orbital area and whatever was left of my sinuses. And then they made a mirror image of it and 3D printed a titanium plate to rebuild all of those structures. And so a week before I got out of the hospital, they extended the bullet hole and cut up along my forehead some and then like completely between both of my eyes like the very inner parts of your eyes and anchored this titanium plate into my head and then reattached all the musculature on the right side of my face Um, because basically my eye and everything wasn't connected to anything so it was just super droopy but they reconnected everything and my i have a lot of nerve damage on the right side of my head where i can't really feel anything and my right eye doesn't open a whole lot but everything is like it still blinks what it does open it will also close when i blink and eye moves and everything but that's where or that that's kind of what's holding everything together now incredible and i'm gonna say it's it, even more so incredible is the fact that it did not hit as you mentioned the intended like parts of your brain that would have possibly created a, a more mobility issues i would imagine for you yeah and I, so not literally none of the bullet entered my brain i don't know oh. my my speculation is because it was my concealed carry ar- or concealed carry firearm and so i had hollow points in it and i think when the hollow point hit the bone from my sinuses, it split apart and rode around on the interior of my skull instead of punching through like a normal like ball round would. But yeah, I, who knows? I mean, the fact that I can, I mean, the fact that I'm here is ridiculous, but speech, all of it, I I still, my personality is the same that it was before. Um, You're still so Zach. I can be grumpy, <laughs> but <laughs> that's... Uh, Aren't we all sometimes? Yeah. So, and a lot of that I noticed just after like that, that motorcycle accident actually, but. um, Right. You had mentioned and. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just mentioning, you had mentioned that the TBI uh, did create some type of irritability mood change that you noticed. Yeah. Sleep became -hmm. really impulsive. And that's when I started abusing alcohol and yeah, it was just change things um i yeah i don't remember where i was going with that (laughs) 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 thank you and zach i'm happy you're here Uh, if that's any consolation i am happy you're here um let's shift to as i mentioned vr uh, or i guess va's vr o&m and mental health as it relates to rehabilitation and beyond where you're going where you were you know, as a military veteran, you have a unique perspective of these services because it is different somewhat. And although VR is state federal with similar governing regulations as the military, I argue that the culture and organizational procedures of the military may offer consumers of VR services different experiences, including maybe the types and quality of the services. In addition, um, as a military veteran myself, I am particularly curious as to your experience navigating such services, particularly during your vision rehabilitation and related recovery. So when you think about your experiences with VR, O&M, and mental health care, what stands out to you as particularly helpful, unhelpful, 
or perhaps meaningful that you can share with our listeners? In terms of rehab, the VA has been incredible. And just in general, um, I've been very impressed with the, the Denver VA. It is a, it's a newer facility and it's giant and it has its issues with getting in for things. But once you're in, it's like the care itself is, is actually really great. And so, like I said, I've had the same therapist for almost five years now. Yes, She's you have. Great. Impressive because yeah. that's not, I'm telling, please, that is not uh, normal to have the same therapist, but not just that, Zach, but the same therapist that was with you during, I mean, following your traumatic injury, right? I mean, yeah. And I, I think some of that might stem from um, the fact that my psychologist works on a rehab unit. And so she is typically around people that have had some severe life-changing things happen and so right I don't know she's probably better suited to to help me through a lot of that and also she just you know she's been there for all of it which has been helpful for me especially as I started to struggle with alcohol again and have gotten through it all of it's it's been good and so just having that has been kind of an anchor for things and like I said when on times when I've been in a really really bad spot again would talk every day instead of mm. once a week right but in terms of blind rehab stuff you know as soon as I was taken over to the VA they started working with me on stuff I'm actually so the VA has 13 blind rehab centers around the country that do they offer inpatient care for blind rehab stuff so I actually I went to blind rehab after my facial reconstruction for two and a half months and for seven hours a day, I think it is five days a week, you do classes on learning blindness related skills. So everything from braille to access technology, you know, that's where I learned my first screen reading software to orientation and mobility with the cane, to cooking, to manual skills, like working in a wood shop or in stuff like that. And all of that has very intentional design especially like with the manual skills stuff they're teaching you through through something that's actually engaging but to develop some of those proprioceptive tools now as you're adjusting to, to vision loss and things like that but so all that was huge but i was also really fortunate the denver va has an outpatient visual impairment services team which is not at all vas and so oh. that's why they were able to work with me as soon as I was taken over there every day. And then also even after I'd returned home from blind rehab and once I moved out on my own, uh, I'd moved to downtown Denver and I worked with one of their O&M instructors once a week. And so she helped me learn how to get around on campus. And then, you know, eventually I was... The biggest street that I had to cross to get to campus was seven lanes of traffic. I could cross that. I could take the light rail to campus. I would walk to and from my jujitsu gym and all around campus to go to the normal gym to lift. And that another huge thing for developing my, my independence again was having that. Oh my goodness. And yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, as we worked together once a week and we would practice these routes and then eventually when I felt like I was comfortable with trying them, like, Hey, tomorrow I'm going to try this route on my own. Just when are you going to be around? So you can be on call, like on standby for a FaceTime call if I get lost. And 
Uh, there were times when I had to call her or other people to figure out where I was at, but that, that was, was really huge. And even now I, you know, I don't really do any regular blind rehab stuff because I'm about good. as independent <laughs> as I can be, but yeah, I will, yeah. I, I can go back to blind rehab whenever. And I probably will this year because they, they actually also, if you're a blind vet, they provide all of your technology. You know, I've, I've had to buy my own computer for like programming and stuff because I need a higher performance computer, but outside of that, like phone and, and canes and all that stuff, they, they provide all that. And a lot of that is when you go to the blind rehab centers and, so it's it's been huge just to have that in the background. And so that's kind of the rehab side of things. And then for vocational rehab, it's been more so, I guess, a, a result of me having to do it for school. When you when you are have like a, a severe disability and try and use your GI Bill benefits for school benefits. VA actually offers you vocational rehab benefits instead. And those at the federal level require you to work with the state. And so I've had to work with them, but it's been very, very minimal and kind of just as required by the VA. So I can't speak to it a whole lot, except like the experiences that I have had, I was not, weren't, weren't super positive. I, I have not been impressed. Really? Wow. Yeah. Can you share an experience of where you kind of conceptualized that or had that perception it's, and not being impressed? It's been more so the, so I, I, it's kind of like with anything, obviously when, when someone is your bridge to a service, they can, you know, having the right person there can be a huge tool to you. Like yes. my psychologist has been a huge asset to me. Yes. But you could also have someone who is not good at their job or doesn't mm -hmm. care about their job and then they're a gatekeeper to services. Right. And right. the experience that I've had with the state voc rehab stuff has been along those lines. Mm -hmm. And that's that's frustrating because you know, I have other resources I can go to, but civilians don't. Exactly. That, that's what you have in like there's a there's a school for the blind here in Colorado, but if you're over the age of 21, like you out, that's that's not for you. So <laughs> what else do you have? You have state voc rehab, and that's it. So if you get one of those people who aren't necessarily performing at like the, their minimum duties, or even just being willing to to shake the tree for you sometimes, then that can screw somebody and especially because it then it's just another it's another hassle where you're like okay I, this is out of my hands and i can't do anything about it and so i would imagine that causes some people to shut down uh yes and it does add a lot of credibility to the mental health issues that a lot of my research has uncovered through the vr state federal system so zach thank you so much for sharing your experience comparing the two uh cultures and organizations and it really does sound like um you know, despite, you know, normal tug of war things, your experience as a military veteran and that affiliation has, has really been quite different than most uh, those in the public atmosphere, like you mentioned, civilians going through the VR system and just kind of feeling like you have all of the resources that you need. More importantly, the resources that are targeted best for you. 
resources that are going to help you become as independent as possible, but not just that, but are tailored to your needs, not just simply, um, like you mentioned, based on that minimal requirement focus. I'm yeah, really happy that you, huge. yeah, I'm really happy that you've had the, a psychologist that's been with you through the entire experience because that too is, is pretty abnormal. And a lot of the research that I've seen, um, most of my, my, uh, my podcast guests who have BVI, and even those who I know personally outside of the podcast space, their experience with mental health services, both in, you know, having that as a, as a resource through VR or even having that as a referral source are less than none, really, honestly, where, whereby they, they found it more effective for them to seek their own external, you know, mental health services. And even that has been um, not the best because therapeutic rapport was not, was not very good, but it's, they're definitely missing the mark there. So I appreciate that. I appreciate that share, Zach. I want to also, I want to ask about um, the work that you do now again, because I think that your individual characteristics, your personality, your values, and your traits, you know, when I measure, when I take all that and I measure that with the context or within the context of blindness, I conclude that you have found a way to adapt and overcome. And there exists research by Brennan and others, 2011, and Garrett and Smadina, 2011, that suggests that the character and type of social support markedly influences the ability for people with BVI to process adaptation, such that adaptation is either a short or long-term endeavor. And I argue that the former mindset, which is that short-term adaptation, focuses too much on what one cannot do rather than what one can do. Um, and I think that type of work takes courage, you know, to be able to, to look at it through a long-term lens, but it underpins the goal of personal accountability within blindness. So given your personal and professional experiences kind of navigating vision loss multidimensionally, what strategies would you offer others with BBI in similar situations? For example, for those struggling with adaptation, for those struggling with suicidality, mental health crises or issues, what would what strategies would you offer or even advice? This is going to sound a little blunt probably, but that's okay. Like if anyone can be blunt about it. I I've, I've probably earned the right to be blunt about it. Like you have to get off your ass and do something about it. Like people mm-hmm. can can show you these skills, but most blind rehab professionals aren't blind. And so they can teach you the very basics of something, but you still have to go apply that. And that's whether it's with technology, like I learned the very basic skills of my first screen reader. And then when I got home, I made myself start a blog so that I had to use the internet and write on there every day and learn how to edit Word document. And it's been a process. And even the same thing with when I moved out on my own, I, I could still be living with my parents. And that is obviously I'm very fortunate that I've had that support, but I also could have never left their house. Like mm-hmm, they would exactly. still let me, they would be doing everything for me right now if I let them. And so you have to make that decision to put in the work and it's long, but 
when you're afforded the opportunity to be provided with any resources, soak it up and then just drive home whatever you've been working on. Like I, when I first moved up onto the college campus, I would go talk to the RAs at the front desk in my dorm building. Like, hey, this is my first semester here. I'm going to try and walk across campus to the gym. Can I have your phone number so I can call you if I get lost? And I would go get lost in Denver. And <laughs> yeah. I, I had to have people save me several times. But like, it's just stuff like that. You have to push yourself out of your comfort zone with all of it. All of it's going to be uncomfortable, but you don't grow without being uncomfortable. And it is. I, that also speaks or holds true in the mental health side of things. Like there it like is. I said, yes. I used to get sweaty and have like it just I couldn't talk about it. And that's probably that's been just as much work as anything else is the mental health side of things. But and it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to not do anything about it. Boom. Right. Not doing anything about it is not okay. <laughs> I, yes. Yep. No, I'm sorry. I took the words out of your mouth. Were you going to say something much, much cooler? No, I'm glad that <laughs> you did. No, that was it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, thank you. And uh, Zach, what about uh, shifting perspectives a little bit? What about specific to those health professionals who are working with people with BVI? So in your opinion and personal and professional experiences, what do you believe would aid, if anything, in improving self-efficacy and adaptability toward employment for people with BVI from, from that health professional standpoint, what, what do health professionals need to know? Um, blind know, rehab professionals, uh, go ahead. Oh, um, no, I just was going to say, I remember you talked about outliers. So I, I think it's funny too. Our listeners yeah. should hear that. <laughs> Well, the blind rehab professionals I've interacted with are all for, they're obviously, they're totally aware of what someone who's completely blind is capable of. And so they don't hold back or, you know, hold a lower bar for you. But I like normal health professionals for the most part seem to have no idea how to interact with blind people or even like think that you need help with everything. I, again, I think. That it's tough because it, you you don't get educated on on the capabilities of someone unless you've been around it and exactly. you're really not around blind people very often. But there's a lot, lot of blind people doing really incredible things and pushing the the limits of those things. And so I think me being intentional about reaching out to some of those communities and and having some of those people talk to you know if, if it's a hospital you could have. If, if you're, if your hospital, like there's a hospital here in Denver, that's a huge spinal rehab center, like in, in the country, it's one, it's, it's a huge, huge place. And so like, I'm sure ha them in the past, having people who are paraplegic or quadriplegic come in and talk about like, no, this is all the stuff that I still do. You know, I, I have adjusted exactly. that. I think that is probably the best way to dispel some of that stuff. Yes. And I would agree getting health professionals to also be comfortable with being uncomfortable and, you know, taking that step to say, I might not know all I believe that I know about people with blindness or visual impairment. And so I need to go and be exposed to the community. Let that be through 
um, you know, very, very informative and powerful community uh, organizations or through VR or even, like you said, through those those smaller systems that are within healthcare institutions in, in themselves. I mean, it takes accountability on both sides for sure. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that. And I remember yeah. you you mentioned uh, this really stuck with me. So I think our listeners would like to hear more about it. You mentioned in our pre-interviews being aware of the outliers and you called yourself an outlier. Could you clarify what that means? They exist in every aspect of life, but right. you know, there's uh, actually the guy who I sat down with on that first snowboarding trip and told that I didn't know how to talk about what had happened to me. Um, his name is Lonnie Bedwell. He's a completely blind veteran. He was the first blind person to kayak the entirety of the Grand Canyon, which was 327 miles of you know, like life-threatening rapids. <laughs> he did wow. that uh, several years ago. And then he just did Everest in 2023. And like, he's got a dude like that who just, again, nothing's going to stop him. And, and educating yourself, you know, if if you're a health professional and you don't interact with blind people and then a blind person comes into your office one day and you've never been around a blind person before, get on your computer and research like what some of these people are doing because even that, that person that comes into your office might not know what's out there and that other people are doing this stuff. And sometimes all it takes is hearing that someone else is doing that stuff. And then they're like, okay, you know, I can try that or I can get back into snowboarding or I can code or yes. all whitewater kayak. Yeah. Yes, those vicarious experiences is hearing that. Yes knowing that yes and i love that you mentioned uh it's important for health professionals to take advantage of that opportunity to get to know that person with blindness i mean that's an excellent opportunity zach because we know that there are more sighted people in the world than there are with blind people and this is something that shouldn't hold us back from relating to each other on that human level um and i i really appreciate you sharing that with our listeners and with me so thank you <laughs> Yeah, you're welcome. Um, so now I want to kind of shift to the last portion of this wonderful conversation that I'm very honored to be a part of is my magic pill discussion. And I I love this discussion because I believe it creates and evokes a sense of diversity within blindness that a lot of people or many people rather um, aren't aren't used to hearing, just like everything we've been talking about. Right. So. In 2004, researchers Hahn and Belt conducted a seminal study, so a very, very important study that was very, um, very novel, that asked participants with disabilities to answer controversial and critical questions related to disability identity. And the question that stumped them the most was, if a magic pill existed that could cure your disability, would you want to take it? And the reason that it stumped them was due to the mixed findings, as one may imagine that, well, all participants are going to elect to take that pill. Why wouldn't they, right? So I ask you, Zach, if a magic pill existed that could cure your blindness, would you want to take it and why? <laughs> Can I answer this in kind of a long and convoluted way please do please <laughs> okay um 
obviously taking it and being able to drive again and not having, you know, digital accessibility issues, which really, those are the big things that I can't, I can't drive. And when I come across software that someone else hasn't made accessible, I can't get around that. I can, I just, I have to have someone else help me get around it. That would make things easier, but I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing in the software industry right now had this not happened. And I also wouldn't be able to, to, to be open about my, my mental health experiences. And hopefully at some point me being open about it will save a life because I think if I had heard someone telling a similar story before I shot myself, that I probably would have been like, okay, I need to go get some help. But it's tough. Yes, I pr probably I probably would because it would make things easier. But I'm also I, I am thankful for what this has given me. But it has been interesting, you know, on other trips that I've been on, I've done all sorts of I skydive and whitewater kayak and rock climb and ski and do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and like on some of these trips with other disabled vets. It's, you know, I've been around guys who are just all sorts of disabilities from quadriplegics to other blind dudes to people with TBIs. Um, when you get those mixed groups like that, this conversation kind of comes up like, okay, if it's someone who's paraplegic, you're like, okay, would you rather be blind or be paraplegic? And like the blind dude always says, I'd rather be blind. And the paraplegic person is always like, I would absolutely rather be paraplegic. And it, wow. I, it, it's just you know, you learn how to work around you adapt barriers. And so that becomes just kind of second nature to you. And yeah, there's sometimes when it sucks ass, but like it, it becomes your normal and you figure it out. And so it doesn't, it, again, it takes work, but it becomes to where it's not such this, such a like looming thing in your life. It's just, it is, it's just your life. So powerful, like goosebumps the whole time. I know it's, I'm just being cringe. I don't know, but <laughs> I, I, it was such a powerful statement, Zach. Um, I mean, it's your lifestyle. It's your life. You adapt, you learn, and you keep moving forward. It doesn't become this constant recurring reminder, at least not in the way that most people would believe. And I really appreciate your candidness in answering that question. Thank you so much yeah. for that. So we have covered the complexity of vision loss from a trauma-informed lens, and we've applied the impact of adaptability of such loss on recovery and healing, particularly as it relates to the vocational context. Critical dialogue and information about the limitations of measuring blindness within an individual rather than at an individual within the context of blindness on someone's mindset were highlighted as detriments to growth and employment. We emphasize the importance of accountability as a mechanism by which people with BVI and those with other disabilities may be encouraged to elevate their implicit talents, their skills, and appropriately distinguish between purpose and process, right? I want to, again, thank my wonderful, amazing guest, Zach Tidwell, 
for providing with me and all of our listeners uh, a powerful story of adapting and overcoming amidst adversity and most importantly, finding your purpose throughout that. So thank you so much, Zach, for agreeing to be on the show today. Um, And I want to encourage my listeners to keep seeing things differently and keep seeing with more than just your sight. Thank you. And again, thank you so much, Zach. Yeah, thanks for listening to me ramble. (laughs) (laughs) It was wonderful rambling. (laughs) 